Well, last week we launched a brand new series. The series is called Trending, and we got a ton to cover today, so we're going to jump right in. Throughout history, followers of Jesus have been on the forefront of human rights. That's been the case for centuries, and that's been true all around the world. Well, this morning, what I want to do is I want to offer three biblically informed um, ways that we, I believe, can shine especially bright in our culture when it comes to advocating for civil rights. And the reason I feel like we've got a huge opportunity to shine here is because of some of the trends that I see in our culture when it comes to civil rights and how people advocate for rights. There's a trend, and we'll put it here on the screen. We also put it in your notes. There's an insert that also has this trend line on it. And I want to explain this trend line that I see when it comes to rights and how they're advocated for here. Let's start with the civic rights side of things. From the dawn of history, people have been organizing themselves. They've been organizing themselves into groups and cities and tribes and nations. And if your city or tribe or group or nation is going to have any chance of success, you've got to come up with some rules some civic rules. You got to figure out how are we going to work together well. There's a great quote here from a guy named Charles Taylor. That's also in your notes and we'll put it up on the screens. He says this about these rules. He goes, to have any kind of livable society, some choices have to be restricted, some authorities have to be respected, and some individual responsibility has to be assumed. This is just basics, right? If you want to have a successful society, you, you got to figure out how this is going to work. Now, unfortunately, back in the day, the way it worked is the way your warlord said it was going to work or the way your king said it's going to work. And there may or may not be rights that are protected that you would have. They would just set it up. They'd say, here are the civic laws. They're going to be like this. Well, in civilized societies, civic rights are derived from civil rights, even though that's not the way it was in the ancient world. Back in the day, civic rights only consisted of whatever rights your local king or warlord lord would let you have. Let's go to the next slide. It explains this well. It says this, the ancients saw the individual back in the day as less important than the tribe or clan and never entertained the thought that every individual of any race or class or status deserved our help and respect simply as a human being. That's how it used to be. It used to be, if you could benefit the tribe in a great way, we'll give you some rights. If you can't, if you're of no benefit to us, then you don't get these rights. And one of the things that made the documents that we now call the Old Testament so remarkable is they ascribed great value to every person. Because they said every person, every man, every woman, every child, was created in the image of God. And that was revolutionary teaching. Revolutionary teaching. And the civic laws then that the Hebrew people held to, they ascribed unprecedented inherent worth, not just to your team, but to individuals, including men and women and children who weren't from your tribe. Unlike the kings and warlords of the surrounding nations, the leaders of the nation of Israel... They were held to higher laws. The king didn't have the absolute say. There was a high authority that even the king was supposed to report to. And that authority offered protections for all individuals. All right, fast forward from the Old Testament to the early years of Christianity. Jesus of Nazareth 
had now both embodied God's truth and enlightened the world to it. And those who followed Christ's teaching and those who were filled with the Spirit were now at the center of an unprecedented civil rights movement that was taking place all over the world. Here's another quote by Tim Keller, and you're going to get a lot of these quotes by Tim Keller today. One of the reasons for that is I want to encourage you to to check out a couple of his books. They have so much to say in this trending series. He's got so much great insight into our culture, articulates it so well. I want to encourage you to check those out. They're in your notes here. But here's here's what he says about Christianity. He says, Christianity saw every person to be created in the image of God and therefore possessing, and his vocabulary is much bigger than mine, I have a hard time with pronunciation. Um, I suppose it would be a good trick for me to say, hey, say this with me and then talk really soft. But um, how is that pronounced? Inviolable? All right, inviolable. Anyway, I looked the word up because I'm like, what does this even mean? Um, It was a new term, but it's a great word. Great word. It means never to be broken or infringed upon or dishonored. Isn't that a great word? So what Christianity did says, we have these rights just on the basis of being in the image of God. It should not be dishonored. Every society, every civilized society should protect people and respect people. And what happened flowing out of that mindset is Christians were taught that people don't just have value because you're really good at making something or doing something for our tribe, but you have value based on, on God-given worth. These followers of Jesus began caring for others in a way that the world had never seen before, certainly not on that scale. They cared for widows and orphans. They welcomed strangers as if they were family. They showed compassion for the poor and the sick and those in prison. They were at the very forefront of justice and reconciliation and the founding of schools and hospitals and orphanages. And they even got backpacks full of school supplies for kids that weren't their own. I leaned over to Laura when they were showing those those pictures. There's almost nothing cuter than a kid with a backpack, right? It was so awesome to see that. So thanks again for contributing. Well, what happened then is more and more tribes and cities and nations began adopting more and more civil rights into their civic laws wherever Christianity spread because these people took this different mindset throughout the world and it began to infect the world around them in a great way. Now, these cultures then as a result became what I would say is more civilized. Here's the definition I'm going to use for civilized today. I believe, and there's a place to write this in your notes if you'd like. Civilized cultures advocate for both individual rights and righteousness. That's important. I believe if you're going to be a civilized society, you're you're advocating for both individual rights and that these individuals work well together. There's a righteousness. They, They play well in the sandbox. When people follow the example of Jesus and the teachings of the Bible, they strive for the best of both civic and civil rights. We ascribe to basic civil rights to every individual, and we hold every individual accountable to good and just civic laws and expectations. And when we can do this right, whether you're a nation or a city or a tribe or a team, great things can happen. And if you were watching the Olympics, you you may may have recognized these uh, five young women who are looked upon as perhaps the greatest Olympics gymnastics team of all time. And I I was listening to some of the commentators because you may not know this, but gymnastics isn't my thing. And and so I was listening to these commentators and they're like, what was the difference maker here? And they said, well, we've got an amazing coach 
amazing coaches. And they develop this amazing system. And what happens is people lay down their individual rights. They come together as a team. Unselfishly and great things happen. I saw some of the women's basketball game. Maybe the first women's basketball game I've ever seen. Uh, the Olympic one last time. And it was great. And I was listening to the commentators. And like, what made this team so great? And they said, one of the things that made this team so great is that here you have women that were all stars on their own teams. But what did they do? They unselfishly worked together They laid down their individual rights and found that they were able to accomplish something greater as a team of individuals than they could if they were all fighting for the ball and and, and going for their own stats and things like this. Tim Keller says it much more concisely than I can. He, He says this about freedom. Freedom is not then simply the absence of restrictions, but rather consists of finding the right liberating restrictions. When team members submit to a great coach, everyone on the team realizes that his or her own, own potential and everyone thrives. Submitting to the right rules, right leader can bring all sorts of great freedoms. And this is what the Hebrew people discovered when they said, God is this ultimate leader. And what if we try to follow his laws? Christ was this unprecedented leader. What if we come under his leadership? And under the influence of Christianity, looking to God as their leader, Christ as their leader, cultures around the globe, as this influence spread, began building more and more civil rights into their civic laws. So there's a lot of history in a short period of time. Now let's talk about the trend that has me concerned and has a lot of us concerned. Let's go to the next slide. Western secularism has gone far beyond civic or civil rights and is radically and increasingly what? Individualistic. And I didn't have you say that one because I couldn't pronounce it. That was the other one. Individualistic. The highest purpose of a social order under this narrative is to set all individuals free to live as they choose. Now, this doesn't necessarily have to be bad. But this used to come with a disclaimer. This idea of of setting people free to live under freedom and have a lot of choices, this used to come with a disclaimer. Now, this disclaimer has been worded a whole lot of different ways by philosophers, countries, governments over the years. Here's how Dr. Ben Carson worded the disclaimer that this comes with. He said, your right to swing a fist stops at my nose. Isn't that a good way to say it? You can swing your fist. Go ahead. But your right to swing a fist stops at my nose. And it seemed that when people were first coming to this enlightened idea that we have rights, we have basic human rights, oh, we should be set free, there used to be this idea of that works if, that works if you don't use your freedom to hurt other people. That works if you respect the rights of other people to be free. That works if we remain a civilized civilization. And the trend that has so many of us concerned is it appears as we've just lost that notion that our right to swing a fist stops at someone else's nose. In fact, with a lot of people, it seems like if I feel like I've got a right or if I'm advocating for someone else's right and your nose is in my way, I'm going to get your nose out of my way using any means possible. If it means shouting down or shutting down 
or bullying or threatening or attacking or slandering or demonizing or spreading lies or worse, I am justified because I'm fighting for my rights or the rights of someone else. This is a culture it appears to be trending away from the golden rule that Jesus gave us. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you as you advocate for your rights. It seems like we're trending towards a society that says, you don't agree with me? I want to make you pay. Is that trend of anyone else concerned? Keller writes this. He says, freedom of choice without limits has become almost sacred. And there's even a term that philosophers use for this. Philosophers call it negative freedom. That means freedom from constraints. And that's in contrast with positive freedom. Positive freedom is the freedom to pursue a good aim. This whole idea of negative freedom has all kinds of problems associated with it. And again, we could spend a lot of time in there, but we're already going to be pressed for time as it is. So I didn't type all these words out in microscopic font because I had a lot of time this week. I, I typed these up because there's some really good stuff here. He really frames some of the problems with this line of thinking really well, offers some great narratives that we have within Christianity to respond to that. I'd encourage you to, to take a look at this. I printed it so you can hang on to it. It might even help you in some future discussions with some other folks. But what I want to do now is turn a corner from just diagnosing some of the issues here to start to say, what do the scriptures say to this? If we are going to try to be God's people, if we're going to come under the leadership of God in this, and try to live in a more civilized way as God would see, what can we learn from his scriptures? And to help illustrate this, we've got this amazing tool up here, flanograph. Now, this is a pretty incredible tool. This is like the screens of yesteryear, Laney. This is like the screens of last year, yesteryear, where you can take this canvas here and look at this. Boom. <laughs> Look at that. And now we got a donkey on this scene. And then we got this guy who we're going to learn about. And we can even put him on the donkey. We could put him on the rock if we wanted to. Look at this. Isn't it crazy? But we're going to put him on the donkey. All right. And we're going to talk about this, this story here today. This account um, that comes to us from the scriptures. And it comes from a book that I don't know if we've ever opened to it before together. It's the book of Numbers. Ha! <laughs> Yes, the book of Numbers. Now, if you haven't read the book of Numbers, there's a lot of powerful truth here in each and every book of the scriptures. And so we're going to look at a narrative that comes to us from the book of Numbers, and it's going to be visually depicted on this display board. All right? So um, we thought with the display board there, this, this uh, flanograph, that it'd be fun to hop on the nostalgia trend, right? Isn't that the shirts? Forget. Okay, here we go. So here's the backstory to today's text. Backstory. God had delivered his people from 400 years of slavery, and now they were learning to walk in freedom. But this freedom didn't consist of doing whatever was right in your own eyes. This freedom that these people were now walking in had boundaries that God set up. 
It was a freedom that came with being a community that does justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly with their God. If that part breaks down, then freedom itself breaks down. God held his people accountable and he blessed them. This wasn't an either or. And the nations around these people of God grew frightened because they began seeing that there is a God who appears to be protecting and leading these people like a good father or like a great king. And so the people around these people began to grow frightened. They began to feel threatened. And one of these nations that was fearful of the nation of Israel was a nation of Moab. Because they felt threatened, they believed that they should attack. I want to hit pause there. Because isn't that one of the problems in our society today? People feel threatened, and so they attack. And in this case, there's a cautionary tale here, because those of you who have read this before, did Israel have any intent to attack Moab? No. In fact, God had told them not to. And so here these people feel threatened because they don't have enough information and they go attacking somebody that they didn't even need to attack. Or at least they thought that's what we have to do. All right, back to the backstory. So this nation of Moab, they realize if we're going to attack these people, there's no way we can beat Israel and their God in a fair fight. So what do they do? They go online. They look up Curse Caster on Angie's list. And they find this guy named Balaam. He was the best, highest recommended curse caster there was. He was really expensive. He was high-end curse casting, right? He was also far away, so there's going to be some big travel expenses, about 400 miles out of town. But they hear he is your go-to guy when you want to bring a curse on people who've been blessed. There's the backstory. Here we go. Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. Let's start with verses 1 through 6. Then the people of Israel, they set out. They camped in the plains of Moab, beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all Israel had, uh, or saw what they had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab, remember, notice they're talking about the, the, the people as a whole here. They were overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at the time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor. Now remember that phrase, Balaam, the son of Beor. He sent word to him, which is near the river in the land of Ammah, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come up out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they're dwelling opposite me. Come now, Curse these people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed, because all your recommendations gave you five stars. Now, quick side note, the Bible is filled with poetry, the Bible is filled with parables, the Bible is filled with all kinds of different genres, But the Bible also contains narratives. And this section is written as a narrative. And one of the amazing things that separates the ancient scriptures from a lot of other ancient texts is our narratives are grounded in history. And let me show you something that I found not in a Tim Keller book, but three of my other sources collaborate this. This is archaeology that that backs up that Balaam 
was a real person who did these things. Um, here's the, here, I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget. In 1967, a Dutch archaeological expedition led by H.J. Franken discovered some inscribed pieces of plaster at a site in modern-day Jordan, which is the re- region where Balaam was from. The fragments were written in Aramaic. They date to 850 BC. And look at one of the fragments. Look what it says. It starts with this inscription of who? Balaam, son of Beor, a man who was a seer of the gods. So there is a real historical context to this. All right, so let's look more at this real story. Okay, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. And they came to Balaam and they gave him Balak's message. And he said to them, lodge here tonight. I'm going to bring back a word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. You may have heard of them. And they cover the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse these people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning, said to the princes of Balak, Hey, go back to your own land, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. So the princes of Moab rose up. They went back to their king and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Once again, the king sent princes, more in number, more honorable than these. They came to Balaam and they said to him, Thus says our king, let nothing hinder you to come to me. For I will surely do you great honor. And whatever you say to me, I'll do. Come, curse these people for me. Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, If your king were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the commands of the Lord, my God, and do less or more. So you too, please stay here tonight that I may know more of what the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them. But only do what I tell you. All right, so Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. If we were to stop right here, just stop reading, not knowing any more of the story, I'll confess, I would come away with the understanding that there's a contrast going on here that you've got the king who's got his own agenda. And in all fairness to the king, that's an agenda that should be a king's agenda. The king's agenda is there's all these people, this huge nation, and they've got us scared. I need to protect my people. We can't take them on in a fair fight, so we're going to get the best curse caster there is. We're going to ask him to curse these people. I need to do that. That's my agenda. I'm the king. So what I would see is this king with his agenda up and against... Balaam, who appears to be looking for God's agenda. Because doesn't Balaam say, hey, I'm only going to say what God tells me to say. And if you try to bribe me with even the king's house full of gold and silver, I'm not going to take it. I'm only going to do what God wants me to do. If you stopped right there, I mean, that's a conclusion that perhaps more than me would come up with. 
But that's one of the problems when it comes to Bible and taking it out of context. Because let's continue to read. And now we're going to add something to our flannel graph. Huh? 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 Emma probably cut this out herself, right? Look at this. We're going to add the 1950s Swedish angel. <laughs> Look at that. With his flaming sword. Ooh. Kids are impressed. They're like, no way. This is so much better than a large screen TV. All right. Now we're going to tell how this, this, this unfolds here. Oh, man. All right. Numbers 22, 22 says this. Balaam gets on the donkey. He starts to head out with these people. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his adversary. Again, if you had just been reading this for the first time, you might end up scratching your head going, what just happened here? Did God change his mind? Because isn't it God that said, you go? And now they're using words like adversary. This ad, we'll put here on the screen. The Hebrew word that we translate here as adversary is the, is the word that we translate into Satan. It's the same Hebrew word in Job chapters 1 and 2. It's the same uh, word in Zechariah 3, I believe it is, 3.1, that is used and is personified as the Satan. So how did Balaam the righteous become an adversary for God? Evidently, there's more going on in this story than appears on the surface. And I want to encourage you to write this down because I think this is one of the huge takeaways from this section of Scripture. There's all kinds of great ones that we could look at, but here's one of them. And there's a place to write this in your notes. In our fallen world, righteousness is hard to recognize. Can I get an amen? All right, great. And we had to coach the, the 915 service because there's the Minnesota amen, you know, and then there's out loud amens too. And I appreciate some, getting both. It's great. All right, so... In our fallen world, righteousness is hard to recognize. And again, you could look at this story and you could say, okay, the king is righteous. All he's doing is trying to protect his people. He's got a right to that. And you could look at Balaam and say, this guy, he is a noble guy. This guy, he wants to do what God wants him to do. Look what he said. You can't even bribe this guy. And so you could be looking at this and going, this is a tale of righteousness, right? But there's more here that's hinted because we've got God saying, This guy's now my adversary. Wow. Our assessments in this world that we have of right and wrong can can often be faulty. I I was thinking back to when we were at um, hanging out with Sarah and Zachariah. We were hanging out with my sister on Sunday, and uh, we were talking about the Olympics a little bit, and we were looking some things up, and and the story was breaking of Ryan Lochte and, and those brave American swimmers who were were on no fault of their own, got pulled over and robbed at gunpoint by these people who were, who were pretending to be police officers. And, and may have even following that story, there's a little bit more to the story, it appears. We can so quickly latch on to something and think that that's right, when often there's more to the story. And I think this is a great example of that, what we see here happening in the scriptures. In our fallen world, righteousness is often hard to recognize. So much so that as the older we get, and if we're diligent about this, we become more self-aware and we begin to realize there's even stuff that we can keep hidden from ourselves. Isn't that true? We have even our own agendas that we can hide from ourselves. So it's so hard to recognize righteousness. Okay, picking up with the story. And now, Balaam, he's riding on the donkey 
And his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey. Get back on the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards. And a wall was on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall, so he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck that donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What? Have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for I would use it to strike you. And also, you're a donkey, and I'm talking to you, and you're talking back, and this is really weird. (laughs) And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? Also, if you're looking for a sword, open your eyes because there's an angel right in front of you. Maybe you can borrow his. Ooh, picking up with the story. The donkey, whoa, what did we say here? The Lord, the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these times? Behold, I've come to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely just now you would have been killed and I would have let her live. Pause. It's so important to listen to other people and to seek truth. Because don't we often, we can lash out at people when we feel threatened. And they may be even trying to help us. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I'll turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. Then the king heard that Balaam had come, and he went out to meet him in the city of Moab on the border formed by Ammon, in the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not send to you and call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? And then Balaam says to the king, behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power on my own to speak anything? And he says this, it just sounds so good. The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Again, Clearly, Balaam is not the champion for righteousness that he appears to be. Even though he says, I'm bringing you the word of the Lord, that is not how he's presented in the scripture. Even though those are his words, that's not how the, the, the Bible portrays him. Once again, in our fallen world, righteousness is hard to recognize. If we are to keep reading, if we're just to keep reading, Numbers 31, look at this. The Lord spoke to Moses, and as a result of what the Lord said to Moses, the Israelites went out, And struck down Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Why would they do that? 
you know, especially if you just keep reading Numbers 22 and just keep reading, Balaam is called upon to curse Israel three times. And three times, what comes out of his mouth? A blessing. Why in the world would you strike down with a sword someone who keeps blessing you? There must be more to the story. And we begin to see the more of the story. Numbers 31, 16. We learn that on Balaam's advice, these wrongdoers in Numbers 31 caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord. And what many of us, like myself, would have missed, the New Testament authors didn't. If you look at the New Testament, look at some of the things they say about Balaam. Second Peter chapter 2, verses 15 through 16. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from his wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So even though it sounds like Balaam's got all the right words, there was something going on beneath the surface. Here's another um, insight. This one from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter two, verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught the king to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might not eat food sacrificed to idols and they might not practice really inappropriate relationships. Parents, you can thank me later on that one. That was edited for the kids. All right, one more insight from Scripture regarding Balaam. And this one is a great transition to application. This is from Deuteronomy 23.5. The Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because, because the Lord what? What does it say? Loved you. Because the Lord loved you. And this brings us full circle to where we started. This revolutionary teaching that we see starting in the very book of Genesis, continuing through the Old Testament, continuing in the life of Jesus of Nazareth, continuing to the book of Revelation, that ours is a God who loves. He's motivated by love. And as I was praying about this and thinking about this, this insight popped into my, my head. And through the wonders of modern flannel boards, I can just take Balaam off and I can add another figure. Jesus. But we couldn't find a sitting Jesus. So... We have Jesus starting a new trend. It's kind of like those stand-up paddle boards, right? <laughs> but it seems to me that there was a man who didn't have hidden agendas. His agenda was out there for the world to see. I came to seek and save the lost. And this man didn't have secret sins. He didn't have any sins. And this man could see clearly what God wanted. He didn't need his donkey to talk to him as he rode this donkey into Jerusalem. And in fact, he could see so clearly that he knew that there was not just one angel, but there was this little angel and this other kind of bigger angel. And there was this angel. And I was calling them all Swedish angels in the first uh, service, but I had someone come up to me and said, you know what? Maybe some of them are Norwegian, you know, and, uh, or, or Finnish, right? Uh, Mermels. All right, so Jesus, he knew that there wasn't just one angel. He knew there was 10,000 angels, as the song goes. 
And he knew that he could have called them down, not to smite him, but to smite his enemies. We've talked about this before. So there's one who rode a donkey into Jerusalem, fully aware of all truth, and he purposely chose to lay down his life for those who had sinned. And he was motivated by love. And he didn't try to hold on to this false notion of rights that that we try to hold on to. Instead, he acted selflessly. And God used him in an unparalleled way. And this morning, what I want to encourage you to do is to open yourself up, if you've never done it before, to the Spirit of Christ. And to be, as the Scripture says, to be born again, to be given a new heart and a new mind that doesn't just look only to the self, but that tries to to align truly and completely with the will and the mind and the heart of God. On our own, we can fall into the trap that the king did, who taught, you know, who thought anyway that he was doing what was right by asking God to curse his enemies. We can fall into the trap of hopping on a Balaam bandwagon and thinking that this person or this movement, they have all the answers when it's never that cut and dry. So as we close today, I want to give you a question and an opportunity to respond to it. And the question is written in your notes along with a couple little helpful statements. At least hopefully they're helpful. The question is this, is your life trending towards righteousness? Is your life trending towards righteousness? There's none among us that are righteous, the Bible says. Not even one in the Bible speaks truth. The only one who was fully righteous was Christ. But is your life trending towards greater Christ-likeness? If so, here's a true statement, number one in your sheet. Walking in grace and truth, which is the way of love, it requires continual discernment. In our fallen world, righteousness is often hard to recognize. Will you be slow to judge and quick to allow the Holy Spirit to help you see logs in your own eyes, to see, to see truth where it may be hidden? Would you really be active on looking and, and trying to be a discerning person? Number two, discernment requires this. Discernment requires fewer I feel statements and asking more help me understand questions. Can I get an amen on that? Is there a place for I feel statements? Yes. But isn't that now where we just jump, right? In our culture. I feel this. I feel this. I feel this. Well, what if we started saying, can you help me understand? And not as a rhetorical device, but as a true seeking of trying to understand. What if we started there and then out of that said, well, here's my thoughts. And number three, inviting others to experience God with us, which is our invitation as a church. It only works if you're offering what? An attractive alternative. It is so easy to point out what's wrong. Isn't that true? So easy. And there's people running all around our culture. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is wrong. Okay. Do you have something that's working for you? What if? As individuals, what if, as God's people, they could look at us and said, you know what? It is working for them. Look at the way that they listen to one another. Look at the way that they love one another. Look at the way that they care for one another. Look at the way how they're willing to, as Christ was, to humble themselves. Look at the way they try to listen. Look at the way they try to to work. And then look at the way they love people who aren't a part of their little team, too. Look at the way they reach out to the world. What if people could see in our lives, something different? What if our presence on social media was more civilized? What if the way we disagree with one another was more civilized? And what if, while our passion for justice was white hot, 
We don't want to lose that. What if while it was white hot, we were living out, walking in the footsteps of Jesus? If so, we'd shine like a flaming angel sword in our culture. And if we did, more people would discover this truth. Tim Keller says it better than I could, so let's close with this quote. They would discover that the ultimate bondage is rebellion against the God that made us. Let's pray. Lord, that is the ultimate bondage because you are that great leader. And you sent your son, Jesus, who was that great leader. He was the way. He was the truth. He was the life. And he is the way. And he is the truth. And he is the life. And the more we individually, the more we as your people, the more we as the world come under that leadership, those good laws, those vital insights, the more we can experience the kingdom of God. So God, starting with us as individuals, Would you help us to surrender for the first time or for the first time again to your leadership? May we leave behind our going our own way. May we accept what you did on the cross on our behalf, your forgiveness, your grace. And may we follow you through the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, God bless you. If you have anything you'd like to pray about, Brandon's right there. He'd love to pray with you in the back. God bless you. Have a great week.